1: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host Ari Barbalat, and I'm honored today to be in dialogue with Dr. Philip Hollander. Philip is a lecturer in Hebrew language and culture at Princeton University. We are here today to discuss his new book, From Shlemiel to Sabra: Zionist Masculinity and Palestinian Hebrew Literature, published by Indiana University Press, 2019. Philip, it's great to be with you today. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and erudition with us.
0: Thank you, Ari. It's an honor to have the opportunity to talk about my book and to be certain that I have a reader who looked at it so closely.
1: Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired you to specialize in studying literature in general, and Hebrew and Israeli literature in particular?
0: Uh, Okay, Ari, I'll try to make this brief. Um, But uh, in terms of growing up, I grew up in Rochester, New York, and uh, I am Jewish, and I grew up in a conservative Jewish household, and I was active in my synagogue, and I spent about five or six years going to summer camp at the conservative movement's Camp Ramah in Canada. Uh, And I, went to public school in the city of Rochester, which does not have a large concentration of Jews. And uh, most of my childhood, uh, until I went away to college, was spent toggling between a highly defined Jewish world and a world which was uh, more Christian or general American. And that the two kinds of identities that I was being acculturated into or socialized into, I guess is the better term, they really weren't uh, active. Uh, When I went to college, uh, I was actually more interested in politics and the political process, and I majored in political science. Uh, And when I was studying American politics, um, I saw a movement towards sort of uh, identity politics within, uh, Amer- the American political scene and I felt that within the American political scene there really wasn't a lot of space for Jews as Jews with a specific identity or the opportunity to express themselves and that sort of this sense that uh, Jewish identity was under the eraser sort of within uh, general American culture and the only opportunity for Jews was sort of within a ghettoized or sort of uh, more religious Jewish world off to the side, I was interested in theoretically Israel and Jewish nationalism and the opportunity for Jews not to live in sort of two separate worlds where they toggled between sort of a general culture and a specific Jewish culture um, and Jewish nationalism with the idea of bringing these two Uh, things together to form one organic culture, which would serve Jewish people specifically. Um, And I hadn't been to Israel uh, in my earlier life. And after I finished my junior year of college, uh, I traveled to Israel for the first time. I I took uh, an academic leave of absence and I studied at the Hebrew University. Uh, And I worked on Hebrew language, which I had been studying through the first three years of college and I wanted to develop it and get it to a level that it could be a professional skill that I could use and also just to get a sense of Israel Um, and I really enjoyed Israel and I find it very enriching and I like how Jewish culture is integrated in every aspect of life I particularly enjoy that Jewish holidays and the Jewish Sabbath are marked and that i don't feel that i'm distanced from other people i like the way that the hebrew language has developed where there are all kinds of terms that even the most uneducated can use like hearing two washer women talking about a place being dark and saying it's the darkness of egypt the next to last uh plague and for me that Jewish culture being integrated into the general culture gives me a lot of pleasure. And I feel that the culture is my culture in a way that I don't feel as attuned to American culture even though I was born in the United States and I've lived most of my life here. Um, And uh, at a certain point though, I had a commitment to return to America. I returned to the United States uh, and I wanted to continue working on Hebrew And while I majored in political science, I decided to uh, study Hebrew literature because I wanted to keep working on my Hebrew. And there really weren't any Hebrew language classes for me. And I had studied a bit of Hebrew literature in Israel, but I studied it more intentionally in the States. And I was exposed to uh, late 19th and early 20th century Hebrew literature, and specifically a lot of texts that dealt with a figure which in Hebrew uh, is referred to as the talush. And this is the uprooted figure. And the uprooted figure's major characteristic is this is someone who grows up in a traditional Jewish world and feels that for in certain ways, this world is claustrophobic. And they go out and they're interested in looking into general uh, society. And, and this is largely an Eastern European thing. So this would be general European culture and that these characters look to find their place within that and they find themselves equally sort of out of place there too. And that they're neither rooted in their, the culture they were brought up in or transplanted to a new European culture. So they're uprooted and I felt in certain ways that this literature reflected sort of things that I was feeling and the question of sort of what it means to be a modern Jew in the diaspora. And I, I found that particularly fascinating and that, you know, I, I, I was really drawn to it. Um, and the experiment with Israel, uh, I really liked it and I decided to go back there and I made Aliyah and, uh, After making Aliyah, I I served in the Israeli military for a bit over two years. And then I went to uh, graduate school in Israel for a year and a half in Hebrew literature Uh, because I was like, this culture is really fascinating to me. This country is really fascinating to me. And then I went back to uh, America um, and I had an interest in studying this literature of the Talush that I had been attracted to before. I I moved to Israel and I got funding in America that I didn't get in Israel. And so I wrote a PhD uh, at Columbia University in Hebrew literature, focused on one of the authors who's in my book, Levi Arieli, who is one of the more significant authors who writes about this character.
1: What inspired you to write this book? What would you like readers to gain from this book?
0: Um, Well, people have what they're interested in. And sort of, I, I, I told you that I was interested in the literature of the Talush, uh, the uprooted figure. Um, and basically this is, a, de, defines a chunk of the best Hebrew literature of the late 19th and early 20th century, and that it's written in the diaspora and it makes the transition to Palestine. and. This literature feels uh, radically different than general European or American literature that I had been exposed to before learning Hebrew literature. And it was different and it was weird. And I didn't really get it and I was trying to understand it. And that my lack of understanding of this literature even though I thought it's pretty good, uh, it sort of is at the center of this book. and. Uh, the historian David Beale in a book that he has called Eros and the Jews, when he talks about this literature, uh, he refers to an aesthetics of impotence. And he finds it radically opposed to what he views as the national revival of uh, Zionism. And so for me, the question is, is this completely opposed this literature, an aesthetics of impotence, is it radically opposed to Zionism as a political movement, or is there actually a relationship between them? And in my book, I argue that there actually is, that this literature is political. And this moves against a a general trend that's very popular in the United States to look at the literature of this period now as a literature that is transnational, diasporic, and is involved with aesthetic aspects that are in general European literature, and that the authors are divorced from political issues. And I find that kind of, how could you not be involved in the issues of sort of Jewish modernity as a writer and just be writing in isolation? I don't believe that it was possible for many or perhaps even any writer. And that I'm interested in the question and uh, there's Foucault, a famous uh, theorist, and sort of he has a breakdown of sort of how cultures organize themselves. And in one of his famous books, he talks about discipline and punish. And punishment is sort of you create rules with uh, force and you punish people if they don't do things. And discipline is sort of cultures form people to have ways to doing things. And this means that almost anything within a culture can become political. And that there are a lot of people as against those who see Hebrew literature of the early 20th century as wholly aesthetic, who see it as wholly political. And that my book attempts to look at this literature and say that it is both political and aesthetic. And this aesthetics of impotism, uh, impotism, of impotence is really about a way to push people to reformulate themselves um, and sort of to become new. And this began in the diaspora as sort of a national revival through the Hebrew literature that was connected to Zionism. But I believe that Hebrew literature was one of the prime in Palestine, was one of the primary forces behind the development of Israeli culture and sort of the Isra- and uh, sort of Israeli society. And a lot of the ideas that it's advancing are promoted. And currently, people who talk about the development of Israeli culture, they look elsewhere. For sort of what's really important, and I feel that the literary tradition and that of its of leading writers like the ones that I focus in my book, that they're helping to define a culture, and that they the, there's great oversight of what they contributed, and certain ideas are overshadowing it that I find less significant. Uh, the creation of uh, cultural traditions, many of which have been eclipsed and gone away, different ways of celebrating Jewish holidays per se, or sort of the martial tradition that Jews became soldiers. I think that's part of Israeli culture, but it, it doesn't really define it. Or ideas of the uh, theorist Aleph Dal Gorian about returning to the soil and reconnecting with the soil. And through that reconnection, Uh, sort of creating a new kind of Jew and Judaism, I I find that those really aren't so important. And I'm looking to sort of talk about a part of the development of uh, Israeli culture and society that's been overlooked, that's of literature, by looking at a specific subset of that uh, culture being uh, Hebrew literature written by certain people, contributing to debates about these issues. And that when we look at it, uh, Hebrew literature is trying to contribute to discussions of what it means to be uh, masculine within Israeli or proto-Israeli culture. And through the prism of masculinity, it's trying to assert values about Israeli society as a whole. And this points to how Gender identity is something that's constructed, which is something that most people today would agree upon. And then I'm interested in how the Hebrew writers employed the relationships between men or homosociality to sort of promote their specific version of this culture. Um, So that is sort of uh, an introduction uh, to the general ideas of the book.
1: For those who are unfamiliar with the term, what do you mean by the term Shlemiel? Can you explain the concept for us? What does the word Shlemiel refer to?
0: Okay, that uh, that it's part of my title and it from Shlemiel to Sabra. And, and what does this mean? Um, when you go to a publisher and you want to have a book title, um, they will play around with different things. Uh, And I maintain that part, but like after the colon, uh, things changed a lot. But a shlemiel, if we go to the standard parlance, is there are two people that the shlemiel would be the person who spills the soup, and then the equivalent, or the second Yiddish term that would go with it would be a shlemazel. A shemazel is the one who has the soup spilled upon him. And this is one version. And in general culture, uh, Schlemiel's, those who are familiar with Woody Allen in his earlier phase, or Larry David in later phases, these represent uh, representations of nebbish Jewish men. And that uh, literary scholars like Dov Sadan and Ruth Weiss, uh, and even the the theorist, Sander Gilman, they talk about sort of the shlemiel as something that originates in anti-Semitic tropes about who Jews are and what they're capable of doing, and that I talked earlier about Jews leaving traditional Jewish culture and attempting to find their place within general European culture, and that culture, one of its fundamental aspects, was a sense that Jews were incapable of doing many things. And Jews had to struggle against these things. It could be the issue of Jews being able to serve in a military, which was a big issue in many European countries, if Jews had the ability to be brave or that they were all cowards. And then there are issues of sort of gender identity that there was for a long time within anti-Semitic discourse that uh, Jewish men, I'm not exactly sure how it was supposed to happen, but Jewish men menstruated because they just weren't men, and that they really weren't capable of doing these things. And Then their issues of the Shlomil is related to Jews being able to in, uh, unable to speak in European languages, and that uh, Sandra Gilman refers to this as maushum, that your inability to speak. And There are all these ideas that Jews are really incapable of things. And while this is a general European idea, when the proud Jews of Eastern Europe, who were the overwhelming majority of world Jewry, when they attempted to join European culture uh, on its terms, they encountered this sense that they were inferior and that this was not something that they could ignore. And while they might've tried to hide it, this was something that really was a negative weight on Jewish men. And that alongside of the sense that Jews were incapable of doing things, the 19th and early 20th century had facts that that European uh, Judaism and and European Jewry were in crisis. They really weren't successful. They weren't successful economically. They weren't successful politically and that there were issues of personal security that would arise maybe not every year, but about every 20 years, there were outbreaks of anti-Jewish violence where Jews couldn't prevent protect themselves. And so for me, the Shlemiel is not just the one who spills the soup, it's sort of a overarching uh, catch-all for the negative perception of the Jewish male as incapable of sort of acting properly or effectively in the world.
1: Can you explain the image on the front cover on your book and on page two? What does it signify? What is its historical context?
0: Okay, Uh, that it. once again, the publishing, uh, when you are lucky enough to get a book published, that in a lot of the negotiations you need to give way. And I gave about 10 images that I liked uh, to the publisher and they went on the cover with uh, an image of a young man wearing a button down blue work shirt, a pair of jeans, a big leather belt, and he's holding a pitchfork at uh, at a diagonal across his chest. And that for me, this image relates to the second major term in my title, which would be sorrow. And sabra, of course, it's an import into uh, Palestine. It's a a kind of cactus. And the the idea is many people speak about the sabra as prickly on the outside and sweet on the inside. And this term has become uh, representative of the Israeli in the early state period. And things like sabra hummus, which is popular in North America, they play on this idea of sort of rough on the outside, sweet in the inside. And the idea of the sabra cactus, even though it's imported into Palestine, it's something that is firmly rooted in the soil of Palestine, and then it grows up into it. And that the image of a muscular tan man holding a pitchfork, uh, it plays right into the idea of this is what a rooted Israeli, who many people feel is the complete opposite Of the Neveshi Shlamil of the Diaspora is. And the image actually originates uh, with an ad for about 20 years of statehood, if I remember properly, uh, that was put out by El Al Airlines. And it says, I am Israel. Okay. And for me, this is highly significant because not only do we have the image of one individual, this one individual and his masculinity are an attempt to depict what Israel as a nation as a whole is. And this idea of of sort of this rooted, firm, masculine, strong man being what Israel as a country is, it's at what seems to be uh, uh, a day and night opposition with what the shlemiel of the diaspora is. And this presents the idea that Israeli culture is a negation of the diaspora or completely divorced from the diaspora. And that today, many people, Israel is working on its 75th year, And most people alive today have always had Israel part of their lives. And they don't see Israel as sort of originating with the diaspora. They begin to believe that this is the way things have always been. And for me, both Israeli culture and Jewish diaspora culture, specifically in the major diaspora center, the the United States or North America, if we uh, let Canada join with the United States, Um, these two centers uh, both have their origins for the most part in Eastern Europe and that they started out the exact same thing. And how have they become two radically different things? And I would argue that American or North American Jewish identity, as well as Israeli identity, are things that have been constructed in the late 19th and early 20th century, and that people need to think about how they're constructed. And since I'm not a specialist in American Jewish culture, I didn't really address how Eastern European Jews created American culture or contributed to it. And my book focuses in how, what was essentially a diaspora culture brought by diaspora Jews to Palestine turns into a new culture. This is the invention of a nation, an invention of a national culture, and societal norms. And that while it can seem like an opposition from Shlemiel to Sabra, that everything is just overturned, I'm interested in charting sort of what I view as a developmental arc, which has both diaspora Jews and Israeli Jews in the same continuum. In your conclusion,
1: your book's final words are the following. While scholars have pointed to the important role played by newly invented rituals in translating the ideas and discourse on Zionism into action and supplying direction to immigrants and native born Early 20th century Hebrew literature constituted the primary address for immigrants looking to satisfy metaphysical needs. Its ability to satisfy this need through the act of reading garnered Hebrew literature, a prominent role that would endure into the state period. Israeli historians would do well to remember this prominent role and engage Hebrew literature to see what it can teach them. What do you mean? in these words? And why did you choose these specific words as the final words with which to end your book?
0: Okay, that um, this is part of, if I heard properly, an Israel Studies podcast series. And that I feel that within uh, Israel Studies, uh, Hebrew literature is given short shrift or it's ignored. Mm. And elements of culture Uh, that are ignored and sort of uh, Boaz Neumann, who who was an Israeli historian who uh, passed away recently, he'll talk a bit about uh, Israeli culture, uh, uh, but for the most, or Israeli literature, but he'll deal with other aspects and, and make them important. And sort of on the kibbutzim, if they came up with sort of a ritual for Shavuot, or people begin to bike ride uh, on Yom Kippur in the major cities when there's no traffic, or there's the development of the uh, Hebrew barbecue if it comes from the kumzits and uh, it moves forward to the mangal, that there Israel is developing cultural traditions, or it's got something like the Uh, celebration of Tel Hai and the the failed defense there. And Israeli historians make a really big deal about it. But I find a lot of these traditions, they were important in the 50s and 60s, but by the 70s, they're already declining. And the sociologist slash uh, cultural historian, Yael Zerubabel, she promotes many of these things as... uh, sort of recovered roots, and she ignores the diaspora. But Hebrew literature, or modern Hebrew literature, there are different points to deal with its inception or its beginnings. But at the one version is that it begins with uh, the Jewish Enlightenment in Germany. And Hebrew texts were about redefining. And HaMe'asef, which was a journal written by some of these early masculine, they began to have a place to discuss what Jewish modernity was about. And that these ideas were expanded as there were many journals in Eastern Europe, in Hebrew that began to develop. And then key journals like HaShiloch, edited by the thinker, Echad and. All of these things were about questions about what Jewish modernity meant, and they took place in Hebrew. And that uh, the literary scholar, Don Miron, drawing on Thibodeau, who uh, who was a French literary scholar, he talks about the idea of a literary republic. And through the world of letters, Jews sort of had sort of a political forum for discussing their ideas and their transformation at a time that they didn't really have any international political bodies or effective political bodies for the most part. And that those who left strict ultra-orthodoxy and were literate in Hebrew, they created a community which at a certain point were tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And this, to use Anderson's terminology, it was an imagined community of people. And Hebrew writers, and uh, both of their and those who were more politically oriented, they wrote for this community and they talked about their ideas. And that Hebrew literature brought uh, the literary republic to Palestine and the ideas that they presented were very important. And people who, who were worth their salt, they knew that they needed to know Hebrew and they needed to be part of these debates. And journals like Ha'Pol uh The Young Worker, they were a place where political ideas and literature interwove, and ideas came forward through this. And that for me, this culture is at the heart of where uh, Israeli culture and Israeli society were going. And what issues were they dealing with? I feel they were dealing with important things that most of the immigrants who were predominantly male were dealing with. That many Jews came to Palestine hoping for individual transformation, and the arrival in Palestine did not offer that individual transformation is is something that's almost completely impossible today as it was 100 years ago. And the recognition that they were pretty much the same people they were when they traveled to Palestine was very disappointing. And that Palestine in the beginning of the 20th century was an undeveloped backwater. It didn't really offer a lot of opportunities for advancement or betterment. And it brought a lot of people to despair. And suicide, Gural al the historian, he talks about sort of a high degree of suicide and uh, many people have talking about the emigration from Palestine by people who initially went there. There needed to be something within the culture that helped people deal with the sense, I'm not radically different. I'm pretty much the same person I was before. And now I'm in this country and it's really, really difficult to live here and I can struggle my whole life, and I'm gonna die miserable. And these are things that they needed to address. What are the immigrants doing there? And sort of, what can they do? And I feel that these writers uh, helped uh, immigrants, predominantly males, to deal with these issues. That yes, you might not complete the labor to sort of uh, draw on the traditional phrasing, but you need to start And that by working together with others, even if they were not the strongest, the weakest, the best, working together and figuring out what the best priorities were for Jews in Palestine and caring for uh, children and women who in many ways were considered like children in the eyes of uh, the male literati, that by helping these people out who couldn't help themselves through collective action, This was a way of being a moral person and a good person and a way to give meaning to your life, even if you didn't radically transform yourself, you radically transformed how you lived your life and you would be judged by your actions. So for me, the literary community is dealing with sort of metaphysical questions. It's a primary address that many, many immigrants and many who considered immigration were dealing with. And I feel that this needs to be thought about when people think about the development of Israeli culture. And uh, I I feel that it needs to be taken up by those in Israel studies. And I I feel sort of uh, that those who aren't specifically uh, interested in politics Um, among literary scholars that they should recognize this political aspect to the literature that they study.
1: You devote a full chapter to the biographies of the authors that you analyze. Can you share some brief biographical synopses of the individuals who appear in your book?
0: Um, Yeah, that while it's out of specific order, uh, I'll try to give a, a rundown of the four primary figures that I'm discussing who all immigrated to Palestine and uh, were considered the four primary prose writers of the early 20th century. The key figure in this group is a man named Yosef Chaim Brenner. Okay, and all of them are born in the uh, the 1880s, I believe between 1880 and 1886. And uh, so Brenner is slightly older and I believe his birth date is around 1880 without checking it. And Brenner grows up in a yeshiva bocher, uh, and he's very vehement. And while almost every biography you read of of Hebrew writers who grow up in Eastern Europe being the Elohim or the Matmidim or the smartest people in the room, uh, he was, most people will agree, highly talented Talmudic scholar. And he lost faith in his teens, something that happened frequently in the late 19th and 20th century. And he became interested in the world of Hebrew culture, this Hebrew literary republic that I was talking about. And he wanted to be involved in the transformation of the Jewish people and how to make it sort of better. And this is stuff that really uh, was interesting to him. And he was wondering if this really cuts it. And in a time that Hebrew literature and Zionism were weak in Eastern Europe, he considered and was involved in more conspiratorial Jewish politics, such as the Bund, which involved socialism. But in the end, he put in with Zionism and Hebrew literature. And by the first decade of the 20th century, when he's still a very young man, he's writing some novels which point him as sort of the like In Winter, which is considered one of the greatest Hebrew novels, that put him on the map. And even prominent writers like Bialik, who might not like him, think this is a really important individual. And then during the 1905 revolution in Russia, he was living in Britain, and he kept the Hebrew literary republic going by publishing something called Hamel Rer, The Wake Awakener. And this was a time that uh, Hebrew journals weren't allowed to be published in Russia, and this sort of he kept the Hebrew literary republic alive. And when he moved to Palestine around 1910, uh, that he became the most prominent Hebrew writer in Palestine and one of the most prime important cultural figures, and that people gravitated around him, and that. His ideas about politics were, were very important. He was even uh, involved in general politics, and he was at the meeting the formation of Drut. And he was a political figure, he was an editor, he was an author, he inspired others. And his version of culture uh, was very popular then. And to this day, he's considered uh, one of Huber literature's most important figures and most widely read early 20th century figures. In 1921, he died per- prematurely uh, when he was uh, killed during the Jaffa riots uh, in uh, the, in Abu Kabir, which is now part of Tel Aviv, uh, but was then an outside village. And he had a number of writers who came under his wing. One of them was uh, Levi Arieli, who Uh, Grew up in a traditional home, went to Kherson, which is in the news now with everything going on in the Ukraine, and he was studying externally, he got involved in Jewish self-defense, and at a certain point during his military service, uh, deserted and moved to Palestine, and While there, he was committed to Zionism. He did a lot of the classic things. He worked as an agricultural laborer. He worked as a watchman uh, protecting Jewish uh, uh, property. And then he moved more towards literature as he worked as an educator. And it was under uh, Brenner's influence that he moved in this direction. And while he's been portrayed as a decadent, I view him Aligned with Brenner and his political approach. The next uh, individual I- that I-, I have is a man named Aaron Ruveni. Uh, Ruveni is his uh, adopted Hebrew name. He is the brother of the first uh, president of Israel, Yitzhak Ben Zvi, uh, who was the running mate with Dabi Ben Gurion uh, for a very long time and a primary uh, Israeli politician. And Ruveni uh, was the black sheep of the Shemshalevitz family. Uh, he kind of didn't really get into religion. Got kicked out of high school. Was sent to America, and he wrote in Yiddish in America. And he didn't. He wasn't really finding a place. There was the 1905 revolution. He uh, went back to Russia to be part of the revolutionary change. But when. Uh, arms that his brother had put into the family home uh, were located. Uh, He and uh, his father were sent to Siberia uh, for uh, political reasons. And he escaped uh, from Siberia uh, by sort of going all the way east and traveling uh, through Manchuria and then through Hawaii. He eventually made his way to Palestine. And uh, he was a Yiddish writer in his beginnings and even the novel I discuss it largely starts out as a Yiddish novel, but he uh, had people, Brenner liked what he was writing and he thought he could, it contributed to the ideas of Hebrew literature. And Brenner initially was the one who translated him. And as Ruveni got better at writing in Hebrew, uh, his novel was then, uh, that or trilogy that that I talk about in the work, it was shifted into Hebrew, and the degree to which he was involved in the process is unclear. Um, in his later days, he moved more toward towards the right on the political spectrum, but he was never really so mainstream. And the final person is the Nobel laureate Shmuel Yosef Agnon, uh, and he is different from the first three in that he is from Galicia not from the Russian empire properly. And that he was raised traditionally, um, but became an autodidact around the time of his bar mitzvah. And he read a lot of traditional texts, but his mother who was fluent in German, introduced him to a lot of German literature. And that basically he while had a period where he became much less devout, And he tried to join the literary republic going to Lemberg to be a Hebrew writer or a Hebrew editor uh, when he was publishing his first stuff. And then he, the the paper folded and he didn't want to serve in the Austrian military. So he moved to Israel uh, or he moved to Palestine and he interacted with Brenner and the others. And he was part of this sort of early 20th century uh, Hebrew literary culture. He would eventually uh, leave for Germany where he lived for about 20 years before returning and making the rest of his life in Israel and going on to win the Nobel Prize. Most people think of or him as a wholly aesthetic person and literary critic Gershon Shaked would say that he is completely apart from everyone else. And in my book, one of my primary arguments is that Agnon, who is seen as an esthete, he was pressured to be involved in politics and his early literature can be read as politically oriented. And one of the moves that I try uh, to do is place him within this group and show how his early uh, literature of the uprooted figure can be read politically with the political message which is aligned with that of the other three uh, authors that I mentioned. Um, I believe that this is a um, fundamentally sound reading. Um, Critic Ann Golem who is a dedicated scholar of uh, Agnon and uh, someone who's more in the lines of deconstruction. Uh, she reviewed the book, and while finding my findings about Brenner and Ruveni and Arieli convincing, she wanted to maintain Agnon as someone who was apart and purely aesthetic. Um, readers can read the book and weigh in if they feel that there is some merit to my argumentation. Um, I feel that Hoffman's own personal position on uh makes it so she can't really accept what I'm saying because it goes against her own presuppositions. But, you know, let the reader decide. So those are the four figures who my book focuses on.
1: Thank you for sharing that. What does your book teach us about power? What does your book say about the relationship between politics and literature?
0: Um, okay. When it gets that I I referred earlier to the idea of Foucault sort of in his book, Discipline and Punish. And punish is about having true force and having true physical power and the ability to wield it over other people. And discipline can be wielded without a lot of physical force. And for Foucault, this is a defining thing of modernity. And he refers to sort of how discipline functions, the idea of micro powers. And that the Jewish community in Palestine or the modern Jewish community in Palestine that is frequently referred to as the Yishuv or the new Yishuv, it didn't really have a lot of power. It couldn't really force people to do anything because initially when these writers arrived, the Turks were in charge and the, the Turks had nothing to do with the agenda. And if you tried to force someone and it was against what the Turks said, it wouldn't work out. And then there was the old yeshuv, the ultra-Orthodox community, and they had their own terms. So the ability to control people and sort of punishment and get them in line to create a new culture, it didn't really exist. And even when the British uh, take over Palestine and then they're given the mandate, the power of the yeshuv is not so strong. And that if you wanted people to change or to use the cliche, get with the program about certain aspects of cultural identity or, or social norms, it had to be things that they kind of consented to. And that discipline disciplinary structures are largely about convincing either consciously or subconsciously people to do what you want them to do. and. You don't need to be physically strong. You don't need to wield physical power against people. You can use language to get people to do what you want. And literature and newspapers and other uh, speeches, etc. they can be used to get people to adapt. And since the Jewish people in Palestine lacked physical power, this kind of, uh, discipline that literature can wield it was really the only power that was available that force as something in the hands of the jews in palestine it's only something that really becomes uh something with teeth around the time of the 1948 war uh and prior to that it was people consented and people could leave anytime they wanted if they didn't want so when there is an absence of physical force, the ability to punish and wield your control and tell people that this is how they're supposed to have culture, that language and literature and words can play a really important role. And the literary republic that I talked about having its origins first with Hamas safe, and then moving uh, into the journals of Eastern Europe, and then to the journals of Palestine, as well as the works being published there, they were words that were shaping how people were gonna act and live their lives. And so when you don't have force, you gotta find a different way. So for me, this is fascinating how words can be power as opposed to uh, things that we more uh, traditionally view as power. And when this talks about the relationship between politics and literature, this makes literature, which is a really uh, a way where words are used in a very complex and effective way as something that can be highly political, highly persuasive, and highly important to understanding politics as a whole. And that I want, or I want, or I believe, that to understand uh, the culture of pre-Israeli Palestine and then Israel, you need to understand how literature is part of politics. And my book is attempting to
1: get at that. What is unique about homosociality as depicted in early 20th century Hebrew literature?
0: Okay. Um, This is where I'm dealing with the term which uh, has most... uh, commonly identified with the literary theorist Eve uh, Kosovsky Kassozi- Sedgwick. Uh, homo sociality kind of is what it is. And that homosociality is homo here being men. Sociality is how men interact with other people. And that uh, Foucault, once again, uh, and others, they talk about the ideas of homosexuality and heterosexuality as a modern construction that arrives uh, at the end of the 19th century, around the time that Zionism is coming into existence. And that throughout most of history, men have socialized with other men. And that this is a fundamental part of any sort of national movement. It's how people are bound together and largely men who were at the beginning of the 20th century, the ones who were considered part of the body politic, especially in a time when women in most places were denied the franchise. And that how do men come together? And I was talking before about the Shlemiel and the sense of Jewish men sort of being weak and incapable. Another thing in this period that's moving forward is that Jews are also homosexuals and they're unable to sort of do the things that mainstream or heterosexual men can do. And that this is something that uh, today uh, in a much more open environment towards uh, homosexuality wouldn't be such a big deal. But at a time that there was large scale persecution of homosexuals uh, throughout Europe and the United States, this was a big deal. And people were afraid to be part of this uh, subculture uh, or group. And Jews who wanted to make it, they were afraid of being associated with things that were too Jewish. And many things Jewish were considered homosexual. And that a lot of the culture written by Jews in non-Jewish languages within Europe, they're very apologetic. And the Jews are uh, sort of made to be exactly like other people. And within Hebrew literature of the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, I believe that it's highly ubiquitous while uh, a scholar, uh, Yaron Peleg, he sees it as less ubiquitous than I do. And and he has an article where he points to only four or five instances uh, over a 20 year period when I can point to dozens or more. Um, That Hebrew literature has got tons of things which deal with men being highly affectionate towards other men. And that the way that they're being masculine is not fitting standards that are popular in Germany. Um, and like the scholar, scholar Daniel Boyarin, when he talks about Zionism, uh, he essentially says that Zionism is trying to turn the Jew into uh, a chivalrous knight or to be like Hannibal the conqueror and to ignore Jewish things completely. Um, and others sort of have martial images of the Jew or the Jewish washman dressed like a Bedouin and a Kazakh, Um, all of these are there, but Jewish men who are not ripped with muscles like Rambo uh, and are gentle and they have loving relationships with other men and to the point where sometimes from our modern perspective, we wonder if these men have sexual desire for others and would like to uh, have physical interaction uh, they're there in that Hebrew literature. And that having this presence in the literature, I think, makes it very interesting. And then the question is, if Jews were uncomfortable about being represented as, within quotes, unmanly or within quotes as homosexual, why does this literature, including the four authors that are at the center of this book, why are such representations so central uh, to this literature? And for me, it's because raising these issues and discussing gender and sexuality helps these authors to promote a specific message about how best to be uh, interacting with other men and how best to to use a more contemporary term, perform their masculinity. And that this is central, in my opinion, to how this literature acts in a political way. What is
1: self evaluative masculinity? Can you explain this term to our listeners? And can you share with us why this term is central to the themes unfolding in your book?
0: Okay. Um, The term uh, self-evaluative masculinity has it, if we uh, sort of get to its origin, it it refers to a famous essay on the author S.Y. Abramovich, commonly known as Mendelemoches Forum. Uh, There was an article about him by Yosef Chaim Brenner referred to as harachat atzmenu b'shelosha Krachim, self-evaluation of us in three volumes. And this essay uh, deals very uh, intricately with issues of Jewish masculinity. It directly addresses uh, the celebrity philosopher, social theorist, anti-Semite, Uh, whatever you wanna call to him, Otto Weineger. And that Weineger, his views of negative views of Jews, they're similar to the the Schlemiel anti-Semitic stereotypes that I'm talking about. And that when it comes down to it, that what I feel Brenner is trying to do in that essay, and these four authors are trying to do when they're promoting a specific form of masculinity for adoption more widely within Israeli culture, it's uh, a type of masculinity which is grounded in introspection. And in a certain point, I called it introspective masculinity because it meant that each individual sort of needed to look inside and evaluate their behavior, recognizing that certain things that they did were counterproductive to their own goals, as well as counterproductive to the goals of the Jewish people as a whole. And what I feel the self evaluative uh, authors are doing is saying that we don't have a lot of power and in a certain way, we're our own worst enemies. And we need to use the power that we have together to advance ourselves and others. And we need to figure out what our goals are, both as individuals and as a nation, and to promote those goals and use the power we have to advance ourselves. And if we don't look inward and recognize where we are falling short and alter to act productively, the limited power that we have as individuals and as a community will be wasted. And that self-evaluative masculinity is trying to create a norm where everyone keeps on point and works to sort of advance collective goals. And that my argument is that even if you don't have big muscles and you don't pick up a gun and you don't dirty your hands with the soil, that these authors are talking about a norm which involves productive action. And this productive action doesn't require that you put down a Palestinian Arab. It doesn't mean you need to kill people. It doesn't elevate farmers over other people. It doesn't have uh, sort of an entry point that not everyone can arrive at. It's something that everyone can do in the present. And even if at certain points you fail and you don't meet the bar, that this type of masculinity can, okay, you failed one day, the next day, get back on the horse and do it. And this plotting gradualist approach to what it means to be a man is very much in line with what the success of Zionism in Palestine is about. Day after day doing what's right going against what's frustrating and hard and not feeling sorry for yourself not blaming others and doing what needs to be done and i feel that this is uh at the heart of what successful zionism is that you're sort of you are carrying the weight and in the end you buy in and it's this sort of micro powers kind of thing and it's convincing people to do what they can do. And certain people can do more, certain people can do less. And you just want to advance the community. And for me, this is a, a much more appealing version of masculinity that I feel is at the heart of developing Israeli culture that doesn't really get much attention or even mention in scholarship by others.
1: What contribution does your book make to our understanding of gender?
0: Um, That when it comes down to the question of gender, I think one of the most fundamental things is that if people have an idea of what Israeli masculinity is, and frequently I'll read in books in in like a paragraph, they'll talk about a night and day transformation, and I'll read about things in newspapers where Israeli masculinity really is their men with guns who shoot at unarmed Palestinian civilians. And this is what it means to be an Israeli man. Uh, and I, I think that that's an oversimplification of things. And for me, gender is something which is constructed and that Jewish men within the diaspora had all different forms of gender identity. And that when Jews began to move to Palestine and they started to form a a community, there were questions of what would be the gender identity that would be prevalent within that society. And that gender identity sort of is with uh, the image on my book of the Sabra, The individual represents the whole in that, and that what defines Israeli masculinity. And there were wide-scale debates about what it meant to move away from being like shlemils and to be rooted Israelis. And, And I feel that my story talks about Israeli identity having many different forms of masculinity that are in competition all the time, certain forms moving more towards the service and others becoming more submerged, and that different times Israeli masculinity expresses itself in different ways, and that this is something that happens within societies, and I think this can be something charted within any national tradition, and that this is an important contribution, and that can be used comparatively, and that if people within Israeli society do not identify with one form of Israeli masculinity, that there are more opportunities. And on the flip side of gender, most gender criticism involves the issues of the construction of femininity, and sort of what it means to be feminine or to be a woman, and that my book sort of highlights that the Zionist project um, from the late 19th century well into the statehood period was very interested in creating a viable, uh, in quotation marks, healthy masculinity. And that this preoccupation was sort of making uh, Jewish men masculine did not leave a lot of space for Jewish women for self-actualization. Like what does it mean to be a Jewish woman? And that a lot of the way that uh, Israeli femininity was created, it was very restrictive. And while there's a lot of discourse about uh, Israeli society uh, giving uh, Jewish women a high degree of equality, I feel that it's much better to recognize that the need to create a quote-unquote healthy masculinity restricted the opportunities for women. And that it's only within the last few decades, I believe that uh, there are more opportunities for Israeli women, especially, particularly Israeli Jewish women to sort of express themselves as women. Uh, outside of highly restricted norms. So those are sort of about gender, both the construction of masculinity within Israel and the construction of femininity within Israel and pre-Israel-Palestine. Uh,
1: There's a quote I'd like to ask you about on page 36, where you write the following. These Hebrew authors remained connected to a tradition of prophetically inspired, engaged writing and refused to confi- consign Shira. To the leper colony and join her there instead they felt compelled to free her and introduce issues of individual and collective illness and imperfection to the public sphere rather than viewing such writing as a form of quote-unquote infection they saw it as an important means for stimulating discussion and communal response to issues impeding improvement of the hebrew- of the jewish people's condition readers expected that hebrew literature would address contemporary issues and that is what advocates of self-evaluative masculinity strove to do. Can you say more about what you were attending to say in this passage and can you expand on this
0: insight? Um, that I, I said that uh, my book was in conversation with two contemporary trends within uh, Hebrew literature study. and. One of those trends is uh, a trend that uh, uh, the scholars, uh, Shahar Pinsker and uh, Alison Shafter uh, have approached, which is an attempt to, int- is transnational uh, modernism. And they look at Hebrew literature of the late 19th uh, and 20th century uh, as literature, which is where the, pe- the, the writers, they're in tune with European writers and that they're divorced completely from the national project. And among the people that they do is sort of talk about their relationship to people like Oscar Wilde, okay? And the idea of what is referred to as decadent European literature and for someone like Pinsker, it's important to point out that many, many facets of uh, early 20th century Hebrew literature are very similar to facets of quote unquote decadent uh, European literature. And that decadence sort of is referred to sickness and a lack of health and it's connected in certain ways the ideas of homosexuality which were marked as unhealthy during that period and that for them it's aesthetic to talk about these things and it has no political import and as i previously stated i think that there's a reason that there are what can be referred to as decadent representations within hebrew literature of the early 20th century and when I mentioned uh, David Beale's term, sort of the an aesthetics of impotence, and aesthetics means that you have a strategy. Why are you depicting these specific things? And for me, that I view modern Hebrew literature, which I've referred to as a literary public, it's basically a safe space for Jewish men who are the primary readers at this time, the only ones really capable of reading it with few exceptions, for them to talk about in-group issues. And for me, a lot of the things are that they're buying into a sense that Jewish men are incapable. And they are looking at personal failures and saying, are these genetic? Are these part of my race? Am I completely incapable? And that the writers, including Agnon, the outlier, I believe that they're not doing this just for aesthetic reasons. They want to start talking about these issues as part of a community. And the community is to a large degree imagined. And one person who is involved in this community is the author. Then the author's representative within the text, which can be the narrator. Then the next one can be a protagonist who is a Talusha, an uprooted figure, and the next would be the uh, reader. And these, uh, well, uh, two of them are f- completely fictional, and one is imagined. They create four people, or we can get it down to three if you would like, but they create a community, and they represent a larger whole. And the idea is, by letting the sickness and failures of Jewish people out as opposed to hiding them, it allows you to begin to think about the problems and start formulating solutions. And I feel that if it's Jews that seem homosexual, Jews that seem uh, effeminate, shoes it, it who seem like complete failures, why is this literature putting them front and center? because it wants to talk about these issues. What is real about these representations and what is just anti-Semitic rhetoric or useless rhetoric? And how can you get through uh, this stuff and start to address stuff that is more important? And this is something that I feel that uh, the authors of the self-evaluative masculine school, they're trying to do. How did self
1: evaluative Hebrew writers understand heroism how did Shmuel Yosef Agnon's depiction of heroism compare and contrast or fit in with broader themes in the self evaluative
0: canon? Okay. Um, that the idea of how do they understand heroism, that it relates to a different sense of what power is and what heroism is, and that. I feel that these authors didn't laud people who had big muscles or dressed in a specific garb, whether it be a kafia on the shoulders or a Cossack hat. It didn't matter if you farmed or you didn't farm. These are all external manifestations of masculinity, and they are performance of masculinity. And in sort of a very kind of existentialist approach to heroism, they're they're looking at heroism as going through and doing what you know is right, even when it might be painful and difficult, and maybe even threatening to you, and making sure that you don't let yourself into making excuses about yourself, and that the question of how does Agnon depict heroism, that one of the primary works that I talk about in the chapter that I devote to his work, or his early work, is uh, Miriam's Well. And this is about an individual named Chemdat. And Chemdat comes to Palestine and he expects to be transformed upon his arrival, but he's not transformed. And he gets very depressed. He goes into all of these fantasies about the world. Um, and we can think it's he's separated from his beloved Miriam who remains in the diaspora. But when she arrives, he just assumes that she's going to love him and everything's gonna be perfect. And Ahemdat never does anything to advance his love to this woman, to advance things in Palestine. And he just doesn't think about what his priorities are and how to move his life forward. And he goes deeper and deeper into sort of self-delusion. And in the end, uh, he commits suicide in an act of delusion. And that while Chemdat is frequently a name used by Agnon for sort of a self-representative within his literature. I feel that the narrator in the story is very distant from the Chemdat of Miriam's well. And if I talked about a group having a conversation, what I feel is going on is that the narrator and the author are sort of looking at Chemdat's actions and his approach to life in Palestine. And they're saying that Chemdat is acting like a coward he's never stepping up to do anything, to accomplish his goals, the things he wants for himself and he wants for his people. And that if the reader is conscious of acting like that, that maybe they're acting like howards too. And heroism is sort of advanced through its, its polar opposite. By acting in an unheroic manner, Chemdat is pointed to as the person that one should not emulate. And the only way to truly judge if you are like Chemdat, or you are different from Chemdat, is to look inward, to judge your actions, to think about what you're doing and to move forward. And I feel that this is how uh, Agnon in his early work is sort of participating in the discourse of the larger group of self-evaluative masculine writers.
1: Can you offer to our listeners a brief introduction to the life legacy and biography of Yosef Chaim Brenner? What is his importance in the history of Zionism? Can you share something about him for our listeners who might not be familiar with the history of Zionism or who might be listening as outsiders out of curiosity without having the background of those with greater uh, previous knowledge.
0: Okay. Um, I, I talked a, a bit more about, uh, a, a bit about Brenner when I introduced uh, everyone as a whole, uh, the four major authors as a whole, but just to return to some of the things, that that uh, a woman named Zoar Shovit, she talks about, uh, within uh, Hebrew culture in Palestine, that from the time that he arrived around 1910 until he passed away in 1921, she refers to that period as the Brenner period, okay? He is the number one cultural figure and literature is the primary form of culture, okay? And that Brenner is editing works and Agnon gets his first uh, break Uh, sort of through uh, Brenner's assistance, his publication of his early work uh, and his help And many people, such as Ruveni and Brenner, they're getting his assistance. He's creating projects for translations. He's involved in the development of of Hebrew drama. He's involved with the creation of many important journals. He serves on the editorial board of most of the major papers. He's involved with many of the political conferences. He's the one who is sort of hobnobbing and in conversation with the leading figures of the people uh, of the period. He's in interaction with people like Ben-Gurion and Ben-Sfi and others. Uh, and he's taken very seriously. And he points to how a cultural figure can have political importance. And he combines great uh, aesthetic skill. He's a great writer. And I treat him as a great writer. And to this day considered one alongside Agnon as largely the primary early Hebrew modernist, one of a few uh, of the greatest merit. And he's just a cultural figure that people listen to today. And that his image is always in the culture and people are doing images of it. And when we think about Zionism within Israel, or even in the diaspora, frequently Brenner is sort of a, a figure that, that comes up. You have a passage
1: on page 75, where you write as follows. Consequently, Brenner employs Mikan Umikan to foreground his preferred masculine model in the public sphere. Simultaneously, he deploys sexual representations through widespread adoption of this norm and to marginalize and even potentially exclude those advancing divergent masculine forms supportive of alternative Masculinity in the novel proves more forceful than that found in Agnon's fiction. Can you elaborate on what you mean in this passage?
0: Okay, I think uh, it's a bit smoother in the book. Uh, But uh, yeah, I would uh, like that I I spoke about um, Brenner. Alongside being a political figure and an editor, that he's one of the leading writers. And his arguably most important uh, literary work during uh, his time in Palestine is the novel *Mikanu Mikan*, uh, which literally is from here and from here, but it means a bit from here and a bit from there. And this is a novel which is uh, <laughs> fragmented. And this apparently fragmented novel, in my opinion, has a very clear structure. And at the center of it, uh, it involves questions of masculinity. And at the heart are the uh, unnamed narrator uh, who is referred to as Obedeitzot, which is basically uh, without advice or someone who really doesn't know how to manage things and a man who he is very very close to whose name is Diasporin and Diasporin is a very charismatic attractive man and he comes to Palestine and during his time there uh, he becomes very close with Oveditzot But Ovedeh Eitzot can't keep him in Palestine. And he goes off to the diaspora where he goes to Chicago. And that the question is, why is this novel written? It's fragments of stuff written by this narrator, Ovedeh Tzot. And uh, I believe that it's about masculinity because there are a lot of different pairings and there are a lot of different Forms of masculinity that arise in this novel. And that uh, we have a man who carries a Browning and dresses in a specific way, who feels that he's masculine. We have Aryeh Lapidot, this man's father, who is sort of a version of Aleph Dallard Gordon, who wants to work the land and feels that that's redemptive. We have people who are politicians, and journalists, and our advancing positions, and there are all these different kinds of models which are external, and we, if I should uh, not leave unmentioned, we have the native-born Israeli boy who is supposed to be sort of freely uh, alive through rootedness in the land, and so that there are a lot of models that come up of masculinity within it, And that all of these models, as we read through, they're failing. And that so Brenner's using the novel to push them down. And then we get to this man, Diasporan. Diasporan, he is someone who wants to be an actor. And in many ways, how we live in life is we act, we assume roles that are given to us. And that Oveditzot is also interested in drama. He's also an author. And the question sort of that he begins to pick up after he's already lost his friend who he's very close with is sort of what kind of role could I give that this man, Diasporan, my friend, would have been happy to have and by assuming that role would have been happy to stay here. And I feel that sort of through the rejection of specific models like the native-born Israeli Sabra or the watchman with weaponry and also the one who works the land, we, those are pushed off to the side and the idea you need to build a role. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Oved Sot has not been doing is that he wants to cut corners and he doesn't want to examine what he's doing. And that he can create a drama of what I've been referring to as self-evaluative masculinity, sort of the struggle to go in and struggle against your dark side or your failures, and then come out the other side by fighting against them and improving yourself. And that this drama, if put forward for people like diasporan, who are considered to be physically strong, and capable that the new yeshuv would be able to advance itself. So that I feel if we look through all the different permutations of masculinity that find manifestation uh, through this novel, Brenner pushes aside certain forms which are in contemporary discourse and then promotes one that he believes is better and that while not every reader is going to understand the exact aesthetic strategy that he has for advancing these ideas, I find it a highly complex and interesting way to draw in readers and promote his ideas.
1: Another author you present in the book is Levi Ari- Arieli. How was he influenced by the ideas and perspectives of Yosef Heim Brenner?
0: Okay. That, uh, that- I spoke about him earlier, but he is someone who comes to Palestine and he's been involved more in Jewish politics, like that, and non Jewish politics, that he leaves the Russian army when a soldier because his sort of socialist ideas come into question. He's involved in Jewish self defense he's involved with socialist organization prior to his military service, he's involved in politics. And he gets to Palestine and sort of certain models that come forward, that of the watchman and that of the man who works the land, they don't speak to him. And Brenner's like, hey, you can influence things by using language and culture to promote a better form of masculinity. And you can also use language and culture as an educator to help raise people to live in a better way. So he gets, uh, Brenner gets Arieli into literature, and that even one of uh, his most important works, uh, Ala Karim, uh, which is essentially God is great in. Arabic. Uh, that this novel, or this novel, this three-act drama is the first uh, full-length drama of Jewish settlement in Palestine. Before that, a man named David Shimonovich he had like a one-actor, which is good for uh, side performance. But this is uh, Alakarim is an important play. It was in the last year or two, it was. Uh, put uh, up on stage again it had in the 80s it had uh, a certain amount of time it was performed in other places so it's an an important drama but at the heart of this drama is uh, something that began to happen uh, as Jews and Arabs who soon would become Palestinian Arabs are in conflict. Uh, Jewish watchmen uh, who got into conflict with uh, these Arabs or Palestinian Arabs, they began to kill each other. And the question was how to memorialize them. And there was something called the Yisgur Book uh, Controversy uh, which involved a book that was about memorialization of this group. And initially Brenner was involved in this project. And it looks that he wanted Arieli to contribute. And Ariely said, Brenner, you want something? I got it, man and that he started to create Ala Karim, which basically ends soon after the murder of a Jewish watchman uh, by a Palestinian Arab, and that it deals with the circumstances of Palestinian Jewish life. But Arieli, he had a lot, he shared a lot of ideas with Brenner, and as opposed to sort of depicting the watchman who dies as a martyr, whose blood nourishes the soil of the land so that the Jews can arise, that this martyrdom, quote unquote, is rejected as a fundamental idea. And Brenner believed that it was more important, uh, as he said in one of his essays, how you live than how you die is trying to, so, That's what Brenner said, and Ariely agreed. And he's like, this novel should, or this, why I keep calling it a novel, excuse me, this drama should be talking or getting people to consider how best to live their lives. And that how the character Fogel, uh, a Jew from the diaspora who renames himself uh, with the, the, the Yiddish term for bird, who can fly freely, which is the idea of rebirth, um, and then he doesn't get it, so he kind of allows himself to be killed. What's the way to move forward? And as I talked about Brenner's Mikan Mikan being involved with tropes of Jewish masculinity, once again we have a figure uh, who represents an Olive Dallin Gordon model, someone who finds redemption through the land. Fogel is the watchman. Then we have a Hebrew. Poet and the idea of the Hebrew poet as a prophet is another trope of what the masculine Jews should do, and then together with a fourth individual who is uh, sort of someone learning to become a teacher, they have a commune, which represents the Jewish community as a whole, and the, in or the new Yeshu as a whole, and this commune is coming of age. And it's a challenge comes before it in the form of a woman uh, named Naomi, who is supposed to be Braun School's fiance, but who immediately rejects him in favor of a Palestinian Arab man. Um, This commune, it's four individual Jewish men who are radically different. They each have different approaches. And rather than saying the one who died for the country is the proper uh, masculine form, Arieli through the influence of Brenner he says he or he charts how the most shlemiel or the most problematic of the four men which is the one who the young man named Yonter who is studying to be a teacher that by looking inward and confronting his own flaws and then challenging sort of his dark side is embodied by the femme fatale figure Naomi, that he's actually performing the drama of self-evaluative masculinity. And he's stepping up to the challenge. And so there are ideas that we see in Brenner taking on forms within uh, Ariely's work. And then the idea of sort of this one individual moving in the right direction, that there's a commune, which is four individuals, and only one of them begins to take up the proper role. So the novel can be, or excuse me again, by calling the drama a novel, the drama ends not with success, because only one of four does it. And this is the idea that Jewish men need to be social together. They need to share the same norms and they need to promote them together. And the idea is that all of them need to work together with a specific uh, masculine form which is the self-evaluative masculinity. And Ariely is special in that he begins to address more closely these issues of sort of how men should interact with other men. And the failure to act effectively together then raises the question in Ariely in this work and in later works, the issue of, well, if you are associating with other men, but your associations are not involved with advancing the needs of the collective, what does that say about you? And it will segue into his later work where the idea is that if Jewish men engage with other Jewish men, but they don't engage with them to promote sort of a collective agenda, that maybe their sort of masculinity and the way that they're uh, dealing with other men should be placed in question as not properly homosocial. And then we enter into ideas about stigmatized homosexuality as against heterosexuality, which would involve proper interaction with other Jewish men, which serves a collective goal versus socialization with other men, which is only for personal pleasure, which would be depicted as homosexual, even if it did not involve uh, physical sexual acts. Can you outline the plot and main
1: characters of Allah Karim? Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, that just to, to go over it, that uh, the novel centers on four male figures, Yaron uh, Peleg, who I mentioned uh, earlier when he st- uh, talked about this book, that these four characters in many ways, they feel like stereotypical Jewish men. Fogel, who goes on to be killed, is a Jewish watchman. Common Weinschenker, like basically Weinbar, uh, it would be the translation of his name. He is an older man who performs agricultural labor when he can get a job. And he's a depiction of Aleph Dar- Dalet Gordon and the religion of labor. Then we have School, who is a Hebrew writer who views himself as a prophet, but his inability to sort of look inward uh, makes it so his writing does not serve a social function. And then we have the fourth character, Noach Yonter, who is uh, studying in a Hebrew teacher's college and he is considered meek. He wears like a pith helmet and he has high water pants and he stutters, which is a stereotype of Jewish men who cannot speak. And he's all of these negative things. And they form a commune, and they live together. And the novel opens with the arrival of the femme fatale, Naomi, who is supposed to be Bron school's fiance, and that basically she sows problems among the group and stirs up problems with an Arab uh, sort of pastry salesman named Ali who is also dressed in sort of unrealistic clothing for a pastry salesman. He looks uh, like he's dressed like an Oriental fantasy of an Arab uh, man, with like the noble savage, that all of these men are addressed by a woman who can control them. And the question is, can they act as men? And the way that I read this novel is that it's about the challenges to masculinity of the four Jewish members of the commune, as well as the noble savage Ali. And only Noah Yonter, the least uh, capable seeming of the lot, is the one by uh, adopting elements of what I've been referring to during this interview as self-evaluative masculinity, mounts a challenge to her. But there is no happy end because he is the only one to do this and it raises the question of how can sort of controlling female things which sort of involves men who cannot control their own passions uh sort of be stopped. um so that's a way of looking at the three-act drama
1: can you tell us about yeshimon can you among okay. the plot main characters of that piece.
0: Yeah, so we shift to the uh, uh, second work that uh, is devoted, who, that receives uh, an interpretation in the book by the same author. Uh, Yeshimon, uh, which essentially can be translated as Wasteland, is uh, a long novella by Ariely, and it centers on the figure David Ostrovsky, And David Ostrovsky is a highly attractive Jewish man who arrives dressed in a beautiful suit um, and has a beautiful fiance in Jerusalem. And he arrives to serve during the First World War with an orchestra unit of the Turkish military. And initially Ostrovsky seems perfect like his beauty the way he dresses the way he's respected by the other people this is the idea that jews can make it and that they will get respect within the ottoman empire and they can transform themselves within palestine and ostrovsky during the time that he's there uh readers gradually begin to learn that his perfection is not Uh, more than superficial that he has a lot of issues including unresolved sexuality is he interested in men is he interested in women why hasn't he moved forward with his marriage what is he doing within the military and in this period and in the final work uh until jerusalem by ruveni the idea that uh homosexual activity or at least pederasty were widespread within uh, the ranks of the Ottoman Empire, they come up. And does Ostrovsky really want to be dominated by another man and specifically an Arab man or a Turkish man? And is he interested in national autonomy? And Ostrovsky doesn't really think about this and he's drawn into the world of uh, the Ottoman military. He's happy to be there with other men and enjoying himself and the sensual experiences that are involved there. Um, But eventually he goes through a process where he begins to consider what he's doing in the Ottoman military, what are his goals? How does he wanna move forward with his life? And when he's captured uh, by some British soldiers, He has some thoughts. Can he just give up? Will he be killed as a former Russian citizen when the British turn him over to Russian forces for treason against Russia? Because he's now serving for the Ottomans on the other side. And he has all of these things, but all of a sudden he finds (coughs) newfound forces within him. He flees and he makes his way to Jerusalem to reunite with his fiance. The reunion does not work effectively, but it points to the idea that when push comes to shove, Ostrovsky has the power to influence his life and the outcome for himself and for others. And he doesn't need to sort of give in to what would be homosexual desires that were manifesting themselves during his time with the Ottoman military, and he would be doing better to create uh, relations with other Jewish men sharing a similar agenda of advancing collective goals. Not finding this, once again, we have an unhappy ending, but the unhappy ending that we see here, as well as in Ala Karim, also by Ariely, as well as Mikanu Mikan and Miriam's Well, all of these have unhappy endings. And they're purposely created as unhappy endings to have readers think about how could a happy end come about. And this involves self-transformation, adoption of a proper masculine form, that being the self-evaluative approach, and also associating with other people other jewish men who sh- who are equally committed to this form of masculinity and not giving into associations with other men specifically non-jewish men which who will not that will not allow you to advance a jewish collective agenda and that sort of takes on a tinge of being a homosexual and so in this work uh, Arieli combines sort of issues of masculinity and homosociality to sort of promote a specific gender uh, approach. Who
1: is, who is Aharon Reuveni? Can you tell us some more about him? Can you describe to us his legacy in modern Hebrew literature? Can you tell us about his most important works? How did the poet Natanzak and the literary scholar, Dan Miron, respond to Reuveni's Over.
0: Okay, um, that to start with the last question is in the 1950s uh, after the state of Israel was already founded that there were a lot of young scholars and young poets who went and they looked more closely at the Hebrew literature that had been being created uh, since the 1890s with new eyes. And the, they were much more interested in aesthetic issues than they were interested in sort of commitment to national goals. A lot of writers uh, who sort of were very prominent uh, that, you uh, uh, just to name one, David Shimoni, uh, and uh, then there's Khan, and I can go on. They, they were promoted because they, or Lamdan, that they serve national interests. But the question of aesthetics wasn't there. And Natan Zach, who together with Yuda Amichai sort of brings uh, Israeli poetry into its own in the fifties and the sixties and sort of are the dominant figures for decades. Um, Zach uh, uh, eventually would be eclipsed by Amichai, his contemporary, but these are two great poets. And Zach, who also got a PhD in literature, he read a lot of literature. And Don Miron uh, was a, a, a child prodigy. Uh, he's still alive today. And he's been doing literary criticism for about seven years. And both of these men, sort of understand literature very well. And they looked at Ruveni's work, specifically his trilogy, three novels that come together, uh, Till Jerusalem, A Yerushalayim. And they said, this is one of the greatest Hebrew novels that was ever written. Why don't people read this novel? And they couldn't understand how in a, a culture that was went through a rebirth period beginning only about 60 years earlier, that people were ignoring this novel. And that they wanted to know why it was being ignored. And that Aaron Ruveni uh, was someone who moved towards the political right Uh, around the time of uh, the Nebi Musa riots, which were slightly before the beginning of the mandate. He saw a lot of Arab violence against religious Jews in the old city and the failure of British forces to protect them or to allow Jews to protect other Jews. And he felt that a much more strident position needed to be taken against the Arabs by the Jews in Palestine and this right-word movement sort of made him a bit of persona non grata people would not publish him and people largely ignored him until the 1950s when he began to, when he received a prize for this trilogy and so he was black sheep with uh, in Israeli politics for his right-word movement but he was someone who wrote well and people like zah and Viron and, and subsequently the literary scholar, uh, Igal Schwartz, they, they see Ruveni as a really, really serious writer. And the question is, if he's such a great writer and he has this really great trilogy, why does everyone ignore it? And that for me, this is a really important question to sort of figure out when the self evaluative masculine writers sort of stop really having a big impact. And one of the things about uh, my argument is that Ruveni in a much more uh, direct way than with other writers is depicting the types of gender and sexual things which others find highly problematic. And that this is part of the self evaluative masculine agenda you talk about the dirty laundry in order to clear things up and try to promote a more productive Zionist discourse among men. And that there were opponents of this approach who were becoming much more prominent uh, in the 1920s. And that they found that the best way to sort of silence this group was to basically categorize the authors and the works as decadent or sick and things that should not be approached. So Ruveni, one of the things that I argue by pointing out how he's manipulating sexuality and gender uh, is that he had a political message which was to promote national rebirth. But those who disagreed with his position said just the mere presence of these things within his work made it worthy of ignoring it. And to this day, this sort of embargo on his work continues. So he's an author deserving of much wider acclaim who has failed to receive it.
1: Can you relate to us the plot of devastation? What roles do the characters Brenshuk, Meir Funk, and the Arab watchman Haj
0: Youssef play? Okay, that Devastation is the third novel in the trilogy, Till Jerusalem, and that this trilogy has three novels, and each of them have a separate male protagonist. The first uh, section and All three novels take place uh, during the years of the First World War in Palestine. And the first novel centers on Tsifrovitz and Tsifern are like numbers or digits. And he's an accountant who's involved with sort of a fictional newspaper in Jerusalem. And he's very much a Shlemiel-like character. And his sort of fears and unwillingness to transform his gendered identity to fit in, lead him to leave Palestine as many people did during the war. Um, And that um, the second novel focuses on Brenchuk, who is considered to be a persona potentially of Brenner who we've spoken of earlier, and Meir Funk is sort of a physically attractive man who seems to embody someone who is transformed to the standards of what is commonly referred to as the new Hebrew. And that each novel deals with masculinity as represented by these men. And earlier critics have pointed to Um, Mayor Funk as representative of the new Hebrew being promoted by uh, Ruveni. And sort of what I view uh, as going on here is that that's not really the case. Once again, we have a group of men representing different forms of masculinity and none of them really satisfactory. And by learning about the failures of the men, the author is using the opportunity to uh, move things forward. And just to bring us more quickly towards a close, that one of the central things in devastation is when Meir Funk uh, confronts the Arab watchman, Hajj Yusuf. Hajj Yusuf, he is sort of representative of the dark side. He is an African Muslim watchman with very dark skin, who has been put in charge of protecting the Jewish community or the Jewish neighborhood where uh, Funk lives. And he sees a mute woman and he rapes her. And that he basically puts his sexual desires before any kind of law, including that he's supposed to be protecting people in the neighborhood. And when Funk, Uh, confronts Hadj Yusuf and sort of uh, uh, attacks and, if I remember properly, kills him, that it's about the ability of a new Hebrew to confront sort of their own dark side, their own passions to do and think about just themselves and not about others. And in his defeat of Hadj Yusuf, what Funk is doing is he's proving that he can act in a self-evaluative masculine way. He can be positive. And that this fails to happen and because he's alone. And Bren Shuk, who has some activities with him, as an author, he doesn't use literature to guide this man. He doesn't act like a friend to advance him. And we see this failure of literature, which evokes earlier things we saw with the author of bronze school in ala karim the authors aren't doing their part to sort of give roles or ideas to jewish men on how to perform and that this fails but sort of both of these men have a very joyful moment when they work together <coughs> to fight against a locust infestation which is based on a historical locust infestation that occurred during the first world war where they work together and they're helping to make things better and like the locusts who are small and insignificant by but can become a great and powerful force by working together the novel points about jewish men working together effectively with a clear agenda to advance things so that through looking at uh these elements of Devastation, we see once again a similar political message being promoted uh, in this trilogy, as we saw in earlier novels and dramas and short stories by different authors that link Ruveni to a group of politically oriented figures who have a, a clear positive political message. And that this means that Ruveni really should not be. Uh, negated as a, a decadent and non-political individual
1: another passage i'd like to bring to your attention is on page 136. um you write as follows because improvement of the lives of individual jews as well as the jewish collective motivated self evaluative hebrew writers they introduced uprooted fictional characters to help their readers clarify their priorities and arrive at a more effective way to realize their goals. Thus, the inward turn of their fiction and the innovative techniques it what it employed to make their enterprise. Presentation of the interior worlds of Tlushim, who allow their guilt-ridden relationship to their Jewish past, their feel of fear, fear of failure, sidetrack them from their goals. Accomplishment has a clear purpose. It enabled self-evaluative masculinity's proponents to clarify the dangers of limited conscious goals and push their male readers to adopt introspective strategies intended to assist them in avoiding this quagmire. Carefully planned action could assist Palestinian Jewish readers in achieving both individual and collective long-range goals. Furthermore, it would provide them with an immediate sense that they were doing their manly best. Despite their limited abilities, by taking control of their lives and helping their community better itself, on page one thirty six. Okay, yeah, that act this for us.
0: It, well, in terms, hopefully, certain things there over the course of our very long discussion have become clearer, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that uh, I'll try to deal with uh, some of uh, the things here and just. To put it that the idea that Hebrew literature of the early 20th century, including Palestinian he- Hebrew literature specifically, it was trying to address issues that Jewish men with a sense that they, that they potentially were flawed or damaged goods were facing as they tried to better their lives as individuals and to better the lives of the Jewish people as a whole through the creation of a society in Palestine were feeling. And that the authors, by giving the interior worlds of fictive Jewish men, was to point out that a lot of the things that many of the immigrants were feeling were commonly held feelings. And that many people were addressing them. And that success needed to be redefined. Rebirth and 100% transformation wasn't going to happen. And the literature was trying to serve a metaphysical need. Yeah, you'll probably die, and things won't be perfect when your death arrives. But if you're one of the individuals who's looking inward, thinking about what you're capable of contributing and doing to better yourself and others, and then you act on that, you're actually doing something really, really significant you were acting in what can be, while well, maybe banal, is very heroic. And it pushed Jewish men to try to do this. And by doing your best, even with your limitations, which the, these aren't Superman, it isn't a fantasy of Jewish American comic book writers that, that Jews can be superheroes. Here, you're not a superhero. You're a common person with flaws. But by exploiting the opportunities that were available to you, you can make a difference. And it's this understated heroism that I feel that the self-evaluative masculine writers are promoting that there's a key message about sort of what it means uh, to be a man or to, to be properly masculine, to be healthy. And this is a realizable goal that everyone can realize. Not everyone can lift massive weights. Not everyone can do agricultural labor. Not everyone wants to be a soldier, but each in their own specific way, they can do what this uh, sort of masculinity is putting forward. And they might be a lot like they were in the diaspora, but there's nothing wrong about it. And Israeli culture did not originate as something that was radically different from diaspora identity. It was just something that was looking to make progress for individual and collective betterment. And this idea of gradual transformation of diaspora Jews into Israelis, I think is an important uh, uh, issue which is not uh, properly noted by either scholars or more general audiences.
1: Thank you, I'm incredibly grateful for the time you spent uh, in dialogue today and I'm extremely thankful for the erudition you shared both in this conversation and in this extraordinary book. As we bring our discussion today to a close, I just wanted to ask you, what are you working on now as your current project? What do you have in mind for scholarship you want to do next as a subsequent research project?
0: Uh, okay, that. But- Initially, one of the questions was that I was interested in focusing on is how this Israeli masculine identity that was created, how it sort of came into eclipse and began to change. And I had a project focused on Hanakh Bartov, uh, one of the uh, Palestinian born Hebrew writers of of early Israeli literature, but right now, just for individual purposes and my old self-interest. I'm looking at issues related to the relationship of the American uh, Jewish center and the Israeli uh, center and the relationship between them based on uh, American Hebrew culture, both uh, the Hebrew culture written within the United States and the Hebrew culture Uh, written in Palestine by those born in the United States. And the individual who's at the center of uh, my current uh, archival research is a man named Tet Carmi, whose uh, uh, name growing up in the United States was Carmi Charney. And uh, after moving to Israel uh, during the 1948 war, he became one of Israel's most uh, prominent uh, poets, And I'm interested in his role in using Hebrew culture and Israeli culture to enrich American Jewish culture in English. He's uh, most prominently known within American circles for his Penguin Book of Hebrew Verse and his editorship of the Modern Hebrew poem itself. So that's A slightly different project, but it deals with issues of the new centers of Jewish modernity and their cultures.
1: Thank you. I wish you only good luck in your upcoming work and research. And I would like to end by conveying my utmost thanks to you for everything you invested in bringing this remarkable book to fruition for us and for your generosity and kindness in spending this time with me and with us today in this conversation.
0: Thank you very much, Ari, uh, for reading my book and entering into dialogue with me and allowing me to air my thoughts.
1: Thank you. To our listeners, uh, this has been your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I've been grateful to be in dialogue today with Dr. Philip Hollander, who is a lecturer in Hebrew Language and Culture at Princeton University. We have been discussing his his new book, From Shlemiel to Sabra, Zionist Masculinity and Palestinian Hebrew Literature, published by Indiana University Press, 2019. Thank you.